Our first scripture reading is from Psalm 8. And uh, we have, uh, over the last couple of weeks, being, uh, been looking at uh, some sermons to deal, uh, dealing with the nature of heaven. And uh, that's really a, a mini-series, I suppose, between the, the uh, main series we have, the next one to come, being on the book of Genesis, Lord willing. But first we read from Psalm 8, and then we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth! Who has displayed thy splendour above the heavens? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? and the son of man that thou dost care for him. Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. And if you would turn please to 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read verses 20 to 28. The text for the sermon is verses 23 to 28. Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who puts all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Covenant people of God, there's a type of question that comes up fairly often in catechism classes, a question that in some ways is rather difficult to answer, at least to answer in an, an exhaustive manner, and it's the question, why? Why did God do things the way that he has? 
why did God ordain the fall rather than ordaining a permanent paradise without sin coming into the world? Why has God made it so that even once we become Christians, we still have to struggle with sin and sometimes fall into it? And related to that, why is it that we, even as God's people, as Christians, why do we still have to die physically, and especially in light of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has already died physically for us? Now, these are hard questions to answer in some ways, because who can claim that he knows everything that lies in the mind of God? It's very difficult for us to, to give a complete answer as to why God did things one way and not another way. All we can say is that we are sure that there are certain reasons that he has explained to us the kind of things that we find in the scripture where God gives explanation of what he, uh, why he has done things a certain way. There we can lay hold of that and we can give those answers. But there's no guarantee that those things are the only reasons that God had or has for acting the way that he does. The, ones, the reasons that we find in the scripture, those are the reasons that God wants us to know. But there may be many other things that are hidden in his own secret will. Two points as we look at what we do know about why Christians still have to die and why we also suffer in other ways. It has to do with the order in which God has arranged things, the order of the harvest, our first point, and secondly, the reasons for that order, the reasons that we do know from the scripture. The order of the harvest and the reasons for that order. Now to us it may seem that death and dying, on the outside, at times they look like a, it looks like a rather random process. Uh, things often catch us by surprise. We don't in the detail know why God has organised things a certain way with our lives. We don't know why this or that person dies in the way that they do and the time that they do. And it may at times seem to us to be a matter of chance or a matter, a matter of an accident. We even call it that. People have accidents and they suffer sometimes even death. Someone may be run over by a car, for example, because from a human point of view, it may seem that they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. One of the implications of our text, however, is that while things to us may seem random or without any reason, any rhyme or reason, ultimately that is not the case. Ultimately, there is no such thing as an accident. It is not a matter of bad luck. It is not a matter of chance. Matters of death and life are very much a matter of God's orderly arrangement. Death in Adam and life in Christ, but each in his own order, as verses 22 or 21 to 23 make clear. And that word order that's used there, when it speaks about life and death, these processes as happening in a certain order, the word order here refers to a very special kind of arrangement. It's like the order of troops in an army. The word is often used in that context. A general organising troops in a very orderly fashion with his army. 
or perhaps also the way that a child might arrange toy soldiers in, uh, in little rows, or as uh, with a play where the acts of the play are organised in a particular fashion. So the word order is an arrangement where someone who is in charge places things in a certain logical order. So what we are being told here is that this is the way that God has placed not only your life but also your death as part of a bigger scheme, an entire plan of salvation, all of which is ordered and arranged in a very particular fashion. Arranged in such a way that we did not, all of God's people, all of the elect did not go to heaven the minute the Lord Jesus Christ died, even though he paid for our sins and underwent death for us uh, at a physical and also at a spiritual level as he was cut off from his father in his human nature. All of that is true, but that did not result in us going to heaven straight away. That is part of this, this orderly arrangement that God has made nor are you taken straight to heaven the moment you become a Christian. That too is not, generally speaking, part of God's orderly arrangement. And Christians who die, excepting the last generation of Christians on this earth, the last generation at the end of the age, otherwise, when Christians die, we do not get our bodies, our glorified bodies back straight away, but live with God in a disembodied state until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that too is part of this orderly arrangement. What are then the main events in this orderly arrangement that God has made? Well, one of those of which the text speaks has already taken place. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. We might call that the first stage in this orderly arrangement. Calling Christ the first fruits is a reference to the Old Testament practice of taking the first and the best part of a crop or a herd and offering that first and best part to the Lord as a sign of the fact that the whole lot, the whole herd or the whole crop belongs to him and is consecrated and is dedicated to service to him. So the Lord Jesus Christ had to be offered to the Father first and he then had to rise from the dead and be accepted by his Father and go to be with him in heaven as a sign of the fact that the whole crop, the, the rest of the crop, Christian people, elect people of all ages, that we will all rise and all be accepted and all go to be with God in heaven. That's the first stage of the harvest. The second stage in this orderly arrangement is the physical resurrection of all of the elect, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming, and that's speaking especially of the physical resurrection of the elect. That time when we receive our bodies back, of course for the last generation, they won't have that separation between body and soul. But for the rest of us, that time when our bodies are physically resurrected and glorified and reunited with our souls. We're not told how long it will be between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the time of this physical resurrection. We are simply told 
that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, whenever that is, all of those who belong to him will enjoy that reunion, that reuniting of body and soul. And that is the second stage of this harvest. The third stage is marked by the words that we find in verse 24, then comes the end. The end comes after we have received our glorified bodies back, reunited with souls that have been waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ, waiting with him in heaven, waiting for this uh, day of his second coming. And this reunion, this reuniting of our bodies and our souls is an indication that God's plan to remove sin and all of its effects has finally been brought to full fruition, to completion. Death is the last enemy that is to be abolished. The Lord Jesus Christ has already defeated it. He has already defeated Satan and sin and death in principle. The power of these things has been broken for the Christian. Uh, The sting has been taken out of death for the Christian. This has all been done in principle, but at the last day, all of that comes to full fruition. And on that day, all rule, all power, all authority, all forces that still oppose God, all of those will be utterly subjected to the Lord Jesus Christ. At the moment, of course, these things are defeated in principle, but there is still a remaining effect of them, and we still find that Satan's sin and death trouble us and do us harm. They don't utterly destroy us, but they do hurt us. But on that day, everything will be put in total subjection to Jesus Christ, and there won't even be a remnant of those things to trouble us anymore. And the fact that we get our bodies back at that time demonstrates that utter subjection, that that last vestige of sin's effect finally undone and subjected along with all of the rest of it. Now you've probably heard stories, you might have read stories about soldiers after World War II, Japanese soldiers uh, stranded on remote Pacific islands and unaware that the war had ended still fighting on and uh, resisting any efforts to explain to them that the war was actually over. In a similar way, death, sin, Satan, still continue to fight on and to trouble us, therefore, even though in principle the Lord Jesus Christ has finished that battle. But the time will come when all of those forces will have to lay down their weapons once and for all and uh, acknowledge as all are required to bow their knee before Jesus Christ, to acknowledge that that battle has been lost by them, and they will be subjected to him in every sense. Now when that happens, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator and as our saviour will end. The harvest will be completely finished, gathered in at the present The kingdom of God is being managed by the Messiah. It has been given into his hands to to, uh, rule that by his father. At present, the son, who is equally divine with the father and the Holy Spirit, agrees to obey his father as if he were a servant in order that we should be saved. But the last part of that work 
is that the Lord Jesus Christ will subject himself to his Father on, in this way on one last occasion as he hands over those reins or hands back those reins of authority, that kingdom, as he hands that back to the Father and lays aside his messianic office because it will no longer be needed. This is not to be seen as some kind of lessening of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when that is done, Christ will still rule with the Father and the Holy Spirit as the triune God will be all in all, will be seen to be all in all. Governing all, the triune God governing all without any need of a mediator or a saviour for someone to stand between God and sinners. Paradise will be restored. Satan and his allies banished. The elect unable to sin ever again. No more death, no more separation of body and soul, no more misery, no more need for Christ to carry out that messianic work and office. And that will be a great day. Not just because of the benefits that come to us, not just because we will get our glorified bodies back and enjoy that reuniting of body and soul, but it will be great to see the glory, and I've talked about this before, but it will be great to see the glory of this, uh, think of it as a kind of ceremony, where the kingdom is handed back to the Father, and the triune God is seen to be all in all, with all enmity gone, and to see every knee bowing, and a kind of celebration of the completion of all of Christ's work, to see God's entire plan of salvation finally reaching its end point. And so some of you I know have been uh, enjoying at least, uh, I'm not sure enjoying is the right word, but watching the America's Cup recently. And uh, you weren't uh, able to celebrate too much perhaps at the end. But I dare say that if there had been a victory for New Zealand, that, that uh, sense of identifying with those who, uh, who go out to compete representing this country... The identification with those causes quite a surge of excitement and enjoyment when your team comes through and they have a victory celebration and they hold the cup up high, that kind of thing. When we identify with that, it's a great thing to be part of it, to even to watch it. In a far greater way, as we identify and are one with the Lord Jesus Christ on the day when we see the completion of all of his victories and all of that paraded before us, our sense of enjoyment and excitement and glorying in that for the sake of his glory uh, ought to be at a maximum. In the second and final place, we consider some of the reasons why God has ordained that things would happen in this particular way. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the first fruits, followed by those who are the Lord Jesus Christ's, the physical resurrection, followed then by the handing over of that completed messianic kingdom to God. And again, we don't know all of the reasons for that, but we are told some. The first reason that we consider is that this is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament and because it was prophesied, one of the reasons it must take place is that God's word should be fulfilled. 
For example, in Psalm 110 verse 1, we read about the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, here we have, as often we find in the Psalms, where the uh, things are said about the uh, King David or the Davidic kings that came from him, uh, glorious things are spoken about them, uh, their vindication and rescue is spoken about, but it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here too we find this uh, said of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord Jesus Christ must subject all his enemies under his feet and they must be seen to be subjected. Their defeat, that which started at the cross, must be worked through to completion because God said long ago that this would happen. And it would therefore uh, be uh, quite uh, improper, it would be uh, wrong and uh, something that will not happen, that this process should stop halfway, with only half of the enemies uh, being subjected under the feet of Jesus Christ. For example, to think that, that death would only partly be taken care of. No, all of these forces that oppose God, all that comes as a result of sin in this world, all that is related to the work of the devil, all of that must be put in total subjection under his feet. Similarly, Psalm 8, verse 6, which also is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. And these are words that give us an important clue as to what is going on here in this orderly arrangement with life and death and the return of the Lord Jesus that God has set in place. Because Psalm 8 not only looks forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and his subjecting of all opposing forces, as he is currently doing, but by the language that it uses, it also looks back to the Garden of Eden and uh, takes up some of the language from the early parts of Genesis, Genesis 1. Referring back to the task that Adam and Eve were given in the Garden of Eden. To fill the earth, to bring out the best in it, and to subdue it, to rule over the works of God's hands, alluding to that language from Genesis, with all things under the feet of Adam and Eve, under God's feet. That was Adam's job, but as you know, Adam failed in that. He messed, he messed things up and he messed them up seriously. He uh, let in the enemy forces that set up camp in this world and have resisted God to this day. This leads to a second reason for God doing things in the order in which they occur. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ may be seen to be the second or the new or the last Adam, however you want to put it, as 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45 says. You see, after the, the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, theoretically speaking, God could have said, all right, now we'll, we'll stop the world and we will save everything that is good now and we will remove all the rest. God could have ended the Christian's experience of sin and misery and death immediately. But I would suggest to you that the Lord wished to emphasize 
that his son is the last Adam, who has undone every bit of the damage that Adam did by his sin, and has done so by undergoing a similar test to that which, which Adam underwent. The Lord Jesus Christ had a similar kind of test in respect to the temptation of the devil. Think of his temptation in the wilderness, but also what he went through on the cross. Just as the book of Genesis gives us a picture of a gradual build-up of the damage that is caused by sin, the consequences of Adam and Eve's failure of this test, alienation from God, alienation, uh, problems developing between man and fellow man, between husband and wife and so on, a reducing of the lifespan of man, problems of murder and violence and idolatry and all kinds of evil, all of that is shown by Genesis to, to increase and to build up and the damage to spread more and more through this creation as you re read on in the book of Genesis. And so the New Testament then shows to us the second Adam coming and undergoing a similar test, passing that test, and then gradually rolling back and peeling back those, those layers of damage that came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. And doing so until the last layer is finally peeled back and paradise is utterly restored. In some ways, as we've seen over the last few weeks, restored in an even greater way than it was originally. And this layer-by-layer layer approach to defeating Satan, this layer-by-layer layer work of the second Adam, where sin shows us the fact that God is all in all and has really, really emphasizes this defeat of every aspect of Satan and sin and the consequences, the misery that comes from the fall. And again, we can think of sporting events to illustrate this. We could uh, think of the America's Cup, especially if New Zealand had done a little better. Uh, we could uh, think of other sporting events where there are a series of events. And uh, there's a big difference in terms of emphasis when you watch each event in the series and see the results of that and see the team that you favour winning each one of those events as opposed to just tuning in at the end and getting the final result. It's a question of emphasis. You get to see more of the extent of your team's superiority if you follow each one of those events in the series. So here in the way that God deals in this orderly arrangement, the way he deals with Satan's sin and death, the consequences of the fall, peeling back each of those layers through the work of the second Adam, we see that this victory is not going to God on points we see instead the Lord Jesus Christ step by step reclaiming everything. Step by step and systematically wiping the floor with Satan. Winning every single contest as well as seeing the final results. So that we see him to reign completely unopposed. And it is driven home to us that he is superior and he is victorious, infinitely superior in every single department. A further reason could be added, though it's not one that's especially alluded to here in our text. And that is that this, 
This step-by-step approach in this orderly arrangement, it means that each generation of the elect, right up until the end, must exercise faith in unseen realities. Because the seen world, that which we see around us, is a world where Satan is still active. Sin still troubles Christians. Christians and their loved ones still die. And it is necessary, because of what is seen in that way, it is necessary for us to look past that and to believe instead that God has a plan, to believe that Satan, sin and death are defeated and will be utterly defeated and subjected. It is necessary for us to believe by faith that the dead, those who have died in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, are currently with him and they will get their bodies back glorified when he returns again, and he will hand that kingdom back to his Father, and the triune God will be seen to be all in all, and every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. And we need faith in order to believe in those unseen realities. We need that as a gift from God. Knowing God by faith by faith in Jesus Christ, in this way, rather than by sight, is, as I've mentioned before, a greater blessing than knowing him by sight. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed, as the Lord said to Thomas. For faith involves trust. And through this this orderly arrangement that God has made, We are taught to trust, to believe and to trust in these unseen truths and realities. Living in a world where there is still sin and sickness and death gives us the opportunity to learn to trust, to have our faith strengthened in the face of opposition. With the result that on the last day, the day when we actually see the last enemy, death, abolished, and everything and everyone subjected to the Son, and the Son hand his kingdom back to the Father, and so on. When we see these things with our sight, our joy, the joy of a mature faith that finally sees everything it has looked forward to, everything it has believed in and anticipated, when we finally see all of that come to pass, with our, with our faith having been strengthened through these hard times and opposition, our joy will be all the deeper and greater, and we will be able to give all the more glory to the living God. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, it is hard for us to understand why we must still suffer and die and why our loved ones suffer and die and why we cannot see the Lord Jesus, we cannot always see the Lord Jesus pushing back wickedness in this world or why he has not returned already when his body, the church, suffers so much. Father, we pray that you would calm our souls and fill us with a sense of the uh, peace that you give that goes beyond human comprehension. And will you do this through the teaching of your word, what it teaches about the work of the Lord Jesus, 
having already uh, won this victory in principle and defeated Satan's sin and death, but uh, also what it says about the, uh, the consummation of these things and the subjection, the final subjection of all his enemies, the raising of our bodies from the dead and the handing back of the kingdom to the Father. Father, we look forward to this because it is our desire to see you, uh, to see what we know is already true, that you are all in all. We pray that you would help us to see the uh, victory and the light and the life that is even now in this world of death and darkness through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.